Welcome to The Catholic Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Chloe Langer, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, Joe Heschmeyer of Shameless Popery and of Holy Family School of Faith Institute here in the Archdiocese of Kansas City in Kansas. We have entered into Lent. It's a liturgical season between Ash Wednesday and Easter, where the church invites us to focus on prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. As Catholics, we take time to fully enter into the passion and death of the Lord so that we can rejoice with him fully at Easter. This Lent on the Catholic Podcast, we're focusing in particularly on the Stations of the Cross. You may have grown up going to the Stations of the Cross and Fish Fry every Friday during Lent at your parish. Especially for cradle Catholics, there is a temptation to just say the Stations of the Cross instead of praying and meditating on the Stations of the Cross. So this Lent, we want to provide a place for you to enter into a meditation on the Stations and equip you to pray the Stations like you never have before. When it comes to a good example of meditations on the Stations of the Cross, we looked to Pope Benedict XVI and particularly his meditations on the Way of the Cross at the Colosseum in Rome on Good Friday in 2005. In this Lenten series, we'll be meditating on different stations. We won't be able to devote a full episode to each station because there aren't 14 weeks in Lent, thank goodness. But instead, we've grouped them into themes that struck us while we were both reading through Pope Benedict XVI's meditation. Today's episode is on the first station. Jesus is condemned to death. We adore you, O Christ, and we praise you. Because by our holy cross, you have redeemed the world. From the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? All of them said, Let him be crucified. Then he asked, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So he released Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. Matthew 27. The judge of the world, who will come again to judge us all, stands there, dishonored and defenseless before the earthly judge. Pilate is not utterly evil. He knows that the condemned man is innocent, and he looks for a way to free him. But his heart is divided. And in the end, he lets his own position, his own self-interest, prevail over what is right. Nor are the men who are shouting and demanding the death of Jesus utterly evil. Many of them, on the day of Pentecost, will feel cut to the heart when Peter will say to them, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But at that moment, they are caught up in the crowd. They are shouting because everyone else is shouting. And they are shouting the same thing that everyone else is shouting. And in this way, justice is trampled underfoot by weakness, cowardice, and fear of the diktat of the ruling mindset. The quiet voice of conscience is drowned out by the cries of the crowd. Evil draws its power from indecision and concern for what other people think. So here we'd like to invite you to do a couple of things. The first is to rewind the episode a little bit and re-listen to the meditation that Joe just read. What are some themes or phrases that jump out to you? We also invite you to read through these meditations on your own, and you can find them in the show notes for this episode on our website, catpod.com. While you're reading, ask the Lord what he wants you to focus on in this first station of the cross, and then take time to listen for his response. 
So, Joe, when you were listening and reading through this meditation, did any certain themes jump out to you from it? I think there were two things that really jumped out to me. Um, the first one is this idea of fear of what others may think. Suppress the voice of conscience. And the second is that Pilate is not utterly evil. He knows that the condemned man is innocent, and he looks for a way to free him, but his heart is divided. And in the end, he lets his own position, his own self-interest, prevail over what is right. What about you, Chloe? Some phrases that jumped out to me, that concept of a divided heart, that Pilate knew what he was doing was wrong, but still decided to do it. And then the other phrase that jumped out to me is, justice is trampled underfoot by weakness, cowardice, and fear of the diktat of the ruling mindset. We wanted a more complete picture of what it means to walk with Christ and his way of the cross, and what it means for every single one of us to walk our own way of the cross. So in a bit of a twist on our regular podcast episodes, we sat down and heard the stories of some friends of ours. I am Laura Ricketts. Well, my name is Chad Perot. My name is Laura Kelly Finucci. Hey, everybody. It's Brandon Vaught. Each person that we visited with shared their experience of condemnation, suffering, failure, courage, disgrace, and perseverance. So to start off the series, let's meet this woman. I am Laura Ricketts. I'm the client and marketing manager for And Then There Were None. That means I wear two different hats in our organization. On the marketing manager side, I handle our social media accounts, some outreach. Uh, I also help to manage outreach and and media for two of our sub-ministries, the Pro-Life Women's Conference and CheckMyClinic.org are projects other than there were none. So I work on all three of of them. Uh, On the client manager side, I work directly with our clients who are former abortion clinic workers or abortion industry employees as they leave their jobs and navigate finding a new job, finding a lot of times a new friend network, a new support system, and and healing. My role as client manager is to walk with them through that process to become almost like a guide, uh, how to navigate what it's like leaving your job in that industry and and trying to really rebuild a life. I first met Laura in 2015 through my work with Epic Pew, a Catholic website. And in addition to her work with, and then there were none, Laura is also a birth and bereavement doula. Her holistic passion for the pro-life cause is inspiring. So to get us started off, we asked Laura to share about the mission of, and then there were none and how she got involved with that organization. So, and then there were none exists to help abortion industry employees leave their jobs in the industry and find new work, find hope, and most importantly, find healing. We were started by a former Planned Parenthood employee, Abby Johnson. She uh, witnessed an ultrasound-guided abortion as clinic director of one of the most successful Planned Parenthood affiliates uh, down in Texas. And there's actually a movie coming out um, about her life and her story at the end of March. And uh, I encourage everyone to go see it because her story is amazing. But what happened when she witnessed this ultrasound guided abortion is that she realized the humanity of the unborn and was compelled to quit her job, very high paying job in Planned Parenthood. And upon quitting was sort of thrust into the pro-life movement and quickly realized that the pro-life movement's really great at loving babies. 
and we have resources for that. And the pro-life movement's really great at loving the mothers who are contemplating abortion, and there's lots of resources for them. Not so much for abortion clinic workers. At the time Abby quit, they were the enemy. And so she thought to herself, well, I can't be the only one. (laughs) And she wrote a book about her story, and people read her book, and they started quitting their jobs in the, the abortion industry. And so she said, all right, well, I guess we need to do something. And so when then there were none was created out of a need really. Um, and since, since that time, we have had 500 abortion industry employees quit their jobs and come through our program. And I got involved, uh, oh gosh, I always want to say two years ago, but it's really been more like five, um, cause time flies when you're having fun. But, uh, I got involved because Abby and I met through a different project. We were working on, um, the Guiding Star Project together, and now she's the chair and I'm the vice chair. And we met in Texas. Uh, we were kind of exploring the, the possibility of bringing a birth center um, to the Austin area. And through that meeting, we just became friends. And uh, I love I love this story because as we became friends, I became more familiar with the work of And Then There Were None. And I personally... I like to feel challenged in both my faith and in how I feel I'm called to love. And from my perspective, it's really easy to love babies and it's easy to love the moms, but I wanted to love the abortion clinic workers, especially because so many times when they leave their jobs, they don't even love themselves. And so I started in Avena. I started praying, God, I'd really like to be involved in, and then there were none, but I don't want to push myself. I don't want to take advantage of my friendship with, with Abby. So if that's something that would be okay, if that's a calling I have, I, I need her to ask me. Um, Cause you know, God must love it when we do that to him. And um, I got a phone call about a week and a half later from Abby. And she said, you know, we need more client managers. I think you'd be perfect. Is that ever something you'd consider? And of course I, yes, of course. Yes. Yes. And, uh, I went back in my prayer journal and circled the page and wrote a big thank you on it. And kind of the rest is history. (laughs) Women and men who have worked in the abortion industry face a slew of condemnations, so much so that those condemnations can stop them from ever even dreaming about leaving the abortion industry. This isn't to say that the actions performed in an abortion clinic aren't horrific. They are. But often those who work in the clinics are hesitant to leave, just like the men and women shouting in the crowd on the day of Christ's condemnation weren't utterly evil, so too these men and women who work in abortion clinics aren't utterly evil either. Laura mentioned that those who leave the abortion industry struggle to even be able to love themselves. Since Laura works face-to-face with the 500 abortion clinic workers who have left their jobs at clinics with the assistance of And Then There Were None, we asked Laura to speak into how she helps abortion clinic workers process through the condemnation that they experience and come to a point of healing. The most important part of our, our ministry is assisting workers as they walk through healing. And, and healing is hard work. And what we've found in our experience is that they have to navigate that, that condemnation from a lot of different fronts. 
from the workers who come to us and say there are people outside of their clinics on the sidewalk, pro-life people, hurling insults at them and calling them names and condemning them for the work that they're doing to the family members who don't want them to quit because that job brings in a lot of money sometimes to the coworkers who are their best friends until they quit their job and then don't want anything to do with them anymore. They have to heal from all of those broken relationships, from all of the insults, from the lack of love, especially the lack of love from the people on the sidewalk who are there in so many, so many times using Jesus as an excuse to, to condemn them, um, which absolutely breaks my heart. And while all of that takes time and it takes processing and we have healing retreats that our workers come on um, several times a year, we have a staff clinical therapist who will work with our, our clients who need extended therapy. Uh, and then the Renun is actually right now um, assisting me as I become a traumatologist. So I will be able to help our clients who many times have PTSD and who exhibit symptoms of prolonged trauma. We provide all of that for them. But the hardest thing, the hardest thing they do is forgive themselves because they can heal from the insults that are thrown at them. They can heal from the condemnation that they've received from people on the sidewalk, from their family members, from their coworkers. But healing from the shame and the guilt and so many times the self-hatred that they have for themselves, that's what takes a lot of work and a lot of prayer and is so beautiful to witness when it happens at our healing retreat for clients who have never been to uh, through our healing program yet. Uh, we call them phase ones. One of the things they are asked to do is to come up with their number. The number is the number of abortions that they were either directly or indirectly responsible for that they participated in. And it is the hardest part of the weekend for many of them. And the reason why we do it is because if you're going to heal, you have to know what you are healing from because the truth sets you free. And so getting to the truth of their involvement in the industry is important. And we do it in an environment and a setting with trained and licensed staff and certified staff and uh, in a very safe place. And when they come up with their number, there's usually a lot of shock. And it takes a while to kind of process the reality of what it is that they are trying to heal from and what they are trying to admit to. And every time I have witnessed this, there is this beautiful transformation that takes place. When they realize, as they are telling us, the staff, what they have done and what they have witnessed and what they feel guilty for, all they receive from us in return is love. And as they learn how to receive the love that we are offering them, they learn how to let God love them. And then they learn how to love themselves. And it's it's indescribable how beautiful that raw mercy is 
On the day of Christ's condemnation, many in the crowd were caught up in the moment. Pope Benedict XVI talks about how those in the crowd were shouting because everyone else was shouting. And they were shouting the same thing that everyone else was shouting. When it comes to being pro-life in today's world, it can often feel like everyone else is shouting messages that promote abortion, euthanasia, among many other movements that don't uphold the dignity and value of every human life. We've watched recently states like New York, Virginia, Rhode Island, and Vermont roll out the most horrific abortion policies we've ever seen, allowing the abortion of children in the third trimester and even killing babies outside of the womb if they survive an abortion. And then there were none is pro-life, without exceptions. As Catholics living in today's culture, we asked Laura how she would encourage us to be holistically pro-life, especially when that stance is unpopular. It's so easy to to cave to it because I think human nature, we don't, we don't want to kind of rock the boat. But I think it's important for us to remember that, number one, Christ didn't make exceptions, right? He was all or nothing uh, up, up on the cross for us. <laughs> and we have to be all or nothing in the way we love. And we also have to be all or nothing in the truth that we are going to proclaim. Because when it comes to exceptions, what we are doing without realizing it is giving a value to life and saying some lives have more value than others, right? So if I, if I am pro-life without exceptions, I am not going to be a fan of, let's say, legislation that says, okay, we're going to ban abortion from you know, whatever time except for rape or incest or those keywords they like to throw out. Because what that does is it places a value on the life of the baby who was conceived in unideal circumstances. And that's not our job. We can't limit the value of a life. For too long, what Abby likes to say and what we kind of all say to them there were none is that we had to work as a movement to humanize the baby in the womb. And we've done it. No one can say they don't know it's a baby. And then we had to humanize the mother who was seeking abortion because for a time in the movement, she got called names. And so we had to humanize her and, and love her and realize that she too has value and worth that is priceless, that we cannot limit. But then we started dehumanizing the abortion clinic workers. They were the enemy. They were monsters. They were all sorts of horrible names. We were saying we're pro-life, but yet... We are dehumanizing somebody, and we can't do that. It doesn't matter whether it's the inmate on death row. It doesn't matter if it's the abortion clinic worker in the clinic. It doesn't matter if it's the baby in the womb, the mother, the child who was conceived in in a horrible circumstance. Each and every one of those people has a worth and a value given to them by God that cannot be diminished by anything. And that's what we have to keep in mind as we live every day as pro-life people. And that's what we have to witness to. One of the reasons I think both Chloe and I thought of the abortion issue when we were reading through this station um, is because Pilate seems like such a model for modern politicians. He's uh, personally opposed to the crucifixion. There's a kind of a back and forth spread out over a couple decades 
that I'm reminded of here. Uh, the first is Governor Mario Cuomo, the father of the current governor of New York, back when he was governor in 1984. He gave a speech at Notre Dame, and he said this. This is, I think, one of the most articulate defenses of kind of the modern pilot's position. He says, The Catholic who holds political office in a pluralistic democracy, who is elected to serve Jews and Muslims, atheists and Protestants, as well as Catholics, bears special responsibility. He or she undertakes to help create special conditions under which all can live with a maximum of dignity and with a reasonable degree of freedom, where everyone who chooses may hold beliefs different from specifically Catholic ones, sometimes contradictory to them, where the laws protect people's right to divorce, to use birth control, and even to choose abortion. End quote. So what he's doing there is very subtle, and, and he works this in throughout the entire speech. He says, you know, my wife and I were personally opposed to abortion as Catholics. We listen to what the bishops say, even though he constantly throws in little things to maybe undermine that by saying uh, he didn't think it was really excommunicable until the 19th century. And he, he tries to sort of water down uh, the historic Catholic position while still paying it lip service. I mean, very deftly, he's kind of saying he's supporting the Catholic position. But then he says, well, I would love, you know, in a Catholic society if everyone just agreed with this. But as a pluralistic country, we can't just impose a Catholic religious law on everyone else in the same way we wouldn't want them to impose it on us. It's a really clever argument. It's an argument that seems um, superficially, at least, to be valid. It, it seems on the surface like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And a lot of people found it very persuasive, so much so that pro-choice Catholic politicians almost always go back to this playbook to justify. They have to say, well, you know, personally, I don't I don't like abortion. I would never do it, but I, I can't impose that. That's how the argument goes. Well, of course, it doesn't really work. Uh, but to get why it doesn't really work, you have to have a deeper understanding of a few things. Number one, whose law is higher? God's law or man's law? I mean, if Cuomo is right that American law really was uh, requiring people to affirm things God denies, then he would be saying, in essence, you have to choose between Caesar and God. And because we've taken an oath to Caesar, we're going to follow Caesar. That's a bad position. That's very much Pilate's position. But deeper than that is this idea that opposition to abortion is based on something that's distinctly unique. Like, if you weren't Catholic, you wouldn't know that life began at conception, or you wouldn't know it's wrong to kill an unborn child. And that's, of course, ludicrous. Cuomo, interestingly, had no problem taking a, what I think was a very principled stand against death penalty. Uh, in fact, it probably cost him re-election because a majority of New Yorkers were in favor of it. He was very openly against it and willing to go down fighting for what he believed in. That's laudable. But let's be clear. <laughs> if you're going to say it's okay as a Catholic to stand up for Catholic moral teaching on the death penalty... It's much stronger moral teaching on abortion. There's much less room for a diversity of opinion or a diversity of views. So in that sense, the argument doesn't really hold up very well. Nevertheless, I was really thinking of a, a particular response given by Bishop Thomas Tobin in Rhode Island. Uh, he was invited to a fundraiser for Rudy Giuliani, who is another pro-choice uh, Republican in this case, uh, Catholic. And he gave a very articulate explanation for why he couldn't kind of get on the bandwagon. I'm going to quote him at length here. He says, Rudy's explanation is a classic expression 
of the position on abortion we've heard from weak-kneed politicians so frequently in recent years. I'm personally opposed, but don't want to impose my views on other people. The incongruity of this position has been exposed many times now. As I've said previously, would we let any politician get away with the same pathetic cop-out on other issues? I'm personally opposed to racial discrimination, sexual abuse, prostitution, drug abuse, polygamy, incest. But don't want to impose my beliefs on others? Why is it that when I hear someone explaining this position, I think of the sad figure of Pontius Pilate in the Gospels, who personally found no guilt in Jesus, but for fear of the crowd washed his hands of the whole affair and handed Jesus over to be crucified. I can just hear Pilate saying, you know, I'm personally opposed to crucifixion, but don't want to impose my belief on others. I thought it was a really strong sort of denunciation of that view. The problem Pilate has is it's just going with the flow. And it's something that I think we can kind of relate to. So I want to I really drive this home. My point here is not just to bash on pro-choice politicians who pay lip service to Catholic teaching. What they're doing is horrible, but sometimes in seeing the bad behavior of others, we can see sort of a mirror of our own bad behavior. So I think it's maybe better to ask, where am I, Pontius Pilate? Where do I see a stand I need to be taking, but out of cowardice, out of being weak-kneed and uh, just morally afraid of the consequences rather than fearing God before all else? Where do I fail to take that stand? So I was reminded kind of secondarily of uh, the Gulag Archipelago, so it was written by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was a Russian dissident who was captured unjustly, imprisoned by the Stalinist regime. And uh, kind of like Immaculate Ibagiza, mm -hmm. um, he has this kind of process of having to forgive his captors because he very naturally, I think, feels a lot of hatred towards the people who arrested him unjustly. And I think he's kind of outraged uh, to all of the people his neighbors, his friends, everyone who stood silently as he was being obviously arrested on pretense, on obviously like trumped up charges. But then he had to really come face to face with himself and realize that his was not the first arrest. And he hadn't taken a hard stand before. Um, when they came for the others, he didn't speak up. And then they came for him. So it leads him to this really profound point. I want to quote him directly here. He said, if, if only... There were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds. And it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? So I think more than just using this as an opportunity to lambast pro-choice politicians, we need to use it as an opportunity to say, which of us is willing this Lent to cut out a piece of our own heart where it's gotten corrupted by sin? So one of the other themes that we've pulled from this first station of the cross, the condemnation of Christ, is this idea of justice being trampled underfoot by weakness. So to dig deeper into that, we want to talk about times where both of us have shared or struggled to share our faith within our own environment. So whether that's the college classroom or a work environment or just with our peers, I think it's easy to think like, oh, Chloe and Joe, they host the Catholic podcast. They have this all figured out. Um, and the reality is, is that we too are human and have that line within our own hearts as well. 
So Joe, when you meditate on this station, is there any experience from your own life that comes to mind when it's been tempting to not live as a witness to the faith or when you have stood up to the crowd? There's one thing that particularly jumps out was a time I wasn't even really aware I wasn't doing this well until it was kind of too late. So back in the day, I was an attorney in Washington, D.C., and I would go to daily mass, but I wouldn't really announce that's what I was doing. I'd go over lunchtime. I would go to mass. I would grab a quick lunch, and then I'd go back to work, and the whole thing took just a tick over an hour. And so I, I just kind of quietly did this, didn't make a big scene of it, had a, a tiny little icon of the Holy Family in my office, and uh, thought, you know, I'm doing my part. It's... It's work, you know. At the time, I wasn't working for a group like School of Faith. It, unsurprisingly, we talk about faith a lot more openly <laughs> here than we did at the law firm that I worked at. The moment of realization for me came uh, at the end of my time there. I was leaving to go to seminary, and I announced this, and I announced why I was leaving. And it was a real conversation starter. It was a, a really incredible conversation starter for a few reasons. Uh, first of all, <laughs> I discovered that many of my coworkers mistakenly thought I was Jewish because I, I look kind of Semitic. Uh, this would work better as sort of like a video interview. People would be like, oh, okay, I get it. Totally. Uh, Heschmeyer is a possibly Jewish last name. It's German. It's, it's very, the Meyer ending can be Jewish. Uh, and frankly, I was working at a law firm with a number of Jewish coworkers. It's, it, I, I got why they thought it, but I was a little offended just because I like, tried, I thought I was doing a good job of kind of passively evangelizing. And it was like, oh, they didn't even know I was a Christian. That's bad. <laughs> and so one of my coworkers came by and said, you know, the most surprising thing of all this is I thought you were Jewish. And it was like a fun kind of lighthearted moment. He's Jewish. And so, he, you know, like we had talked about Jewish stuff before and it had just never come up that I wasn't. Uh, the closest it had come up is one time I was there on Yom Kippur and had to explain to a coworker why I was there. But, like, it was it was a revelation to me that I wasn't, like, saying anything contrary to the faith. I wasn't denying the faith. And my coworkers weren't, like, bashing on the Catholic Church while I stood by silently. It just really was an issue where we'd all kind of left any open conversation of the faith at the door. And I felt bad about it. I felt like this was really an opportunity. And one of the other reasons I felt bad about it is because it was such a beautiful thing once the dam was broken. Because so many of my coworkers came by my office to talk about issues with the faith, pro or con, struggles or glory stories. One of them in particular I want to share. It was a friend of mine. He actually encouraged me uh, to share this. A friend of mine, he was a lobbyist. And during the time I worked with him, I didn't, I mean, we, I was a litigator. He was a lobbyist. So we didn't work directly very much, but he was a few offices down. So we had kind of a fun, sort of superficial workplace friendship. But we, we didn't live anywhere close. He lived in Maryland. I lived in Virginia. It was, I mean, we didn't hang out outside of work, anything like that, other than occasionally going to lunch. Anyway, he comes to me and he tells me, in short, he's Greek Orthodox, but had been to a Catholic boarding school, I believe, and high school, and his wife is Catholic, and so they go to Mass pretty regularly. And he lives in this kind of tony uh, southern Maryland suburb, and... The big problem he had been facing, this will give you an idea of just how nice of a suburb this was. The big problem he was facing is that someone was littering in his yard every day. They were throwing a fifth of vodka, which is 750 milliliters, an empty fifth of vodka every, every day, day. into his yard. Um, because he had a corner house, so someone would just like turn the corner, chuck it out of the car window, it turned out. 
and and drive on. So he'd have to clean up broken glass daily and it was driving him nuts. And so he called the police and this being an area without a lot of crime, they actually tracked this down. They, they found a receipt in one of the bags, went back to the liquor store, pulled up the security camera, found who had bought it and went to the guy's house, confronted him. It turned out he was secretly an alcoholic. Uh, also, I believe a lawyer and he would just drink an entire fifth of vodka on the way home. Holy smokes. And then just go about his, he was a highly functioning alcoholic. And this was a, a real moment of grace for that guy because it, it made him kind of confront this problem. But for my friend, uh, I'll just share his name. My friend, Harry, he, he was comfortable with me sharing the story. He asked me to, uh, he had a different problem. He had to learn to forgive this guy because he'd been cleaning up his mess and that was literally his only point of contact with him. The next Sunday is the capital campaign for the Archdiocese. And so he's sitting at Mass and he's filling out his little card with his wife to donate. And his wife nudges him and goes, look in front of you. And he looks and the guy in front of him, whose name he just had just signed was the guy he'd been struggling to forgive. They'd literally never met each other, but this incredibly providential moment, the only contact they have, other than Harry cleaning up his mess, is sitting right behind him in church. And he said that sign of peace was the most powerful, like, sign of peace he'd ever had in mass. This is like a moving story. Like, there may have been a few tears shed in the the telling of this. It was a powerful moment of grace, and I was so uplifted by it. I've shared it with several people who found it really uplifting. Totally changed Harry and my friendship, the whole relationship we had. And I I just not entered into that for so long out of some misguided sense of propriety about what is and isn't appropriate to share at work. And so that was a that was a moment for me where I had kind of a punches pilot moment of just putting the politics of the situation maybe above a bold proclamation of the gospel. But it was so rewarding when that changed. That's awesome. What a great story. Mine, I had a similar, or an experience of thinking that I should share and then kind of holding my tongue out of fear of the crowd. So I graduated from Washburn University with a bachelor's degree in history back in 2016. So both Joe and I have the same degree a couple years apart. A couple years <laughs> Just apart. <a> couple. <laughs> 2007 versus 2016. Yeah. <laughs> um, so history students, when I graduated, were required to choose a minor. And originally, I minored in art history. And that's something that I've become so much more passionate about post-college than I was in college. Um, and so I ultimately ended up picking a minor of women's and gender studies, which is always a fun gender <laughs> um, minor to bring up in like good Catholic interviews. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, it's probably not the most no, common not. <laughs> uh, Catholic minor. Um, and I'd always been so always been fascinated by the interaction between men and women. And as a Catholic woman, I've been on this quest to kind of discover what it means to live out the feminine genius. Unfortunately, I totally overlooked the fact that I went to a very secular university. We were not having conversations about John Paul II. We were having conversations about a very secular understanding of gender and sexuality. I remember one of my last classes in the minor was my senior year and it was gender and communications. And so I got my hopes up like, this is so great. We're gonna have conversations about how men and women communicate with each other. But it ends up that that wasn't the conversation. Instead, it was topics about how our culture communicates about gender and sexuality. And it only took a couple of lectures to realize that again, like I was in the minority because I believe that you can't change your sex. And so I, I very much stuck out. 
it was incredibly tempting to become part of the crowd that semester. I was working hard on some things for my major, and communication class was in the evening, so by the time that it hit, everyone was sleepy, and I really didn't want to rock the boat. And so I often felt like nodding along or nodding off and becoming one of those many students in the class who never raised an objection to something that was obviously believed by a majority of those gathered in the class, or at least the vocal majority. So one day someone brought up um, a false representation of what the Catholic Church believed about contraception, and I knew I had to say something. And so my heart is racing and my hands are clammy. And in all honesty, I can't tell you exactly what I'd said. Um, but the way that the response was taken by the classmates, I could tell that I was not the most popular opinion in the room. And I'd love to say that every time something came up that I disagreed about in conversation, I would raise my hand or bring up a conversation point. But even after that moment, there were still times that I struggled to stand out against the crowd and to let people know or to let people... what what people thought of me control what I said about the truth. I didn't convert everyone in that minor program to be Catholic um, or even to a shared understanding about sexuality and gender. But I did get to know many of the men and women who sat in the seats beside me and I got to know their story. And it was really tempting to let my classmates become this crowd of faceless people who I disagreed with. But the more that I got to know them and the more that I realized that there were reasons for where they were coming from, I was able to see Christ in them, not to validate their opinions or to agree with 100% of where they were coming from, but to see that they were a human being too, to see their humanity. Um, and I hope that they were able to see Christ in me as well. But yeah, that, that moment where you know you have to say something, you know you should say something, um, it is very tempting to not say something. And I've been there and, and, and done both of the options and I highly recommend speaking up, even if you, yeah, if it's uncomfortable. Yeah, I think that there are a couple of things that I'd really draw from that. Uh, the first is just a reminder that we can kind of glamorize this and be like, well, if you just stand up, it's going to be like those, you know, there's kind of this running series of stories where, like, you got this atheist professor and he's like, oh, uh, then the noble Christian student challenges yep. him and is vindicated. It often doesn't work no. like that. It usually doesn't work like that. It usually is like, and then the Christian was kind of laughed out of the room yep. and they went back to believing what they believed before. And the Christian spent the rest of the day thinking, if only I'd said it a different way <laughs> <Yes>. or, <laughs> uh, it or really embarrassed times. about like having said anything. And then he's timid the next time, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Yep. So it's good to recognize that we can't be guaranteed some immediate obvious success. Like it's possible a seed was planted that was life changing. It's also possible no one else in that class remembers that at yep, all. Guaranteed. <laughs> and we won't really know until until heaven which one it is. But you were faithful to it, and that's all that you can really ask for. Right. The other thing I thought was really cool about that is that it was a humanizing moment. You benefited from it. So often we think of these situations where we have to pump in the right answer, and so this whole interaction is for the good of the other person, the person we're talking to or the people we're talking to. And so often it's actually for our good in ways we can't even know or predict. So I think it relates really well to the meditation. Because one of Ratzinger's points is that Pilate is not utterly evil and the crowd is not utterly evil. These are humans making bad but kind of understandable choices. And it's a reminder too, I think to us, of, of really Alexander Solzhenitsyn's point, that much of the evil in history isn't done by these just psychopathic or sociopathic people. In fact, someone who's truly a psychopath is less accountable yeah. for the evil they do in some important ways. Unfortunately, much of the evil is 
people who have proper emotional and psychological wiring, people who even know right from wrong, but choose the wrong because they feel like an overwhelming pressure to conform or to get ahead or whatever it is. And we can so easily be that last group of people. Thanks be to God, most of the listeners aren't psychopathic or sociopathic. I assume I don't really have any demographics on this. We don't we don't track that kind of thing. iTunes does not ask listeners this question. Right. <laughs> so and I'm know. not sure that people would answer that honestly. I'm not sure it'd be very reliable. But in all seriousness, like that's not the kind of problem we have to worry about. We have to worry about being the kind of person Pilot was. And to be able to say, I don't want to be that person, but also to be able to say, I know and understand Pilot and can still see why Christ on the cross can forgive Pilot and forgive the crowd. It's a humanizing moment for us so we can grow as better Christians ourselves. If listeners are in the Kansas City area, what is an opportunity that's coming up that they can take advantage of to learn more about these things? Every Tuesday evening at Cure of Ours, uh, we're having mass followed by meditations on these stations. Uh, I'm leading the second part of that, obviously, not the first. <laughs> And uh, quite a few people, I think we've already had 75 people Mm -hmm. sign up. So if you want to join the crowd in a positive way, (laughs) this is a great opportunity to do that. It'll be kind of a guided uh, meditation to go through it. And hopefully it'll be really spiritually beneficial and you can learn from the other people who are there. Plus Mm -hmm. it's a nice evening mass. Yep. I'll put information for that class in the show notes too. So you can find it. Great. Well, let's close now in a prayer. And so a quick point on the prayers. We're going to use the prayers from the Stations of the Cross. So these are actually prayers written by Cardinal Ratzinger. Um, I think they tie in beautifully with the themes that he draws out in the meditation. So for today, it's the prayer from the first station. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, you were condemned to death because fear of what other people may think suppressed the voice of conscience. So too, throughout history, The innocent have always been maltreated, condemned, and killed. How many times have we ourselves preferred success to the truth, our reputation to justice? Strengthen the quiet voice of our conscience, your own voice in our lives. Look at me as you looked at Peter after his denial. Let your gaze penetrate our hearts and indicate the direction our lives must take. On the day of Pentecost, you stirred the hearts of those who, on Good Friday, clamored for your death, and you brought them to conversion. In this way, you gave hope to all. Grant us ever anew the grace of conversion. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Catholic Podcast is an initiative of the Holy Family School Faith Institute. To find out more or to see how you can contribute to our mission, check out www.schoolfaith.com.